Okay, it's great to see all of you here today. Uh, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we come to this very familiar story, you once again fill us with insight into what it says about you and what it means to live as your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I was reading a daily devotion from uh, J.R. Packer last week, and he said that uh, there are actually four ways to grow as a Christian. And the uh, first one was Bible truth. And he said, you know, we study and read the Bible. There is prayer, there's corporate worship, and there's fellowship. And he said all these ways, all these things are means by which God gives us to know Him better, to have a closer communion with God. He said, well, obviously we have Bible truth because as we read and study the Bible, either to singularly or with other people, we, we see Him more clearly, we know Him better. As we pray, we rely and trust in Him more. As we come together for corporate worship, through the songs that we sing, we love Him better and we encourage in our heart. And in fellowship, we help one another grow in Christ. But he said the problem is that uh, rather than getting to know God better with these four things, sometimes the problem is that we do these things for the sake of doing them. So we do Bible study, not to know God better, but to have more knowledge because we, are, we have the pride of knowledge. For prayer, instead of trusting and relying on Him, we, we use it to ask God for things. Uh, when we come for corporate worship, instead of actually encouraging our, ourselves to love God more, we actually come just to enjoy the singing for itself. And for fellowship, we come to enjoy the company rather than to help one another grow in Christ. And I think that uh, that's a, a really good point as I was thinking about it for today's sermon, because here today we come to a people who really don't seem to know God very well. Uh, as we come to chapter 17, we seem to see that the people of God here uh, really seem to struggle to, to know God or to seem very close to God in any way. So as we begin this chapter in verse 1 to 3, we see the setting of what's happening here. So we've seen over the last few weeks that Saul had lost his position as the king of God's people. David had been anointed, but in private. And now in chapter 17, we see another problem happening to God's people. And here in verse 17, if you look up here on the map, <coughs> uh, there was a, a large war about to happen, isn't it? And uh, it says there, in verse 1, The Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkoth in Judah. And here in the valley of Elah, they were getting ready for battle. So uh, I hope this is big enough for you. It seemed bigger on my, my computer. But anyway, this is uh, central Israel, alright, central Israel, the green part is the Philistine-controlled territory. Ekron and Gath were the closest cities to the Israelite territory. If you remember, much, much earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 1, remember Ekron and Gath were the, the first cities where the Ark of, the God, of God went when it was captured. Okay? So now, uh, as we zoom in in this part, so this is a zoom-in area, we see that the Philistines and the Israelites were on different sides of the valley, and every morning, I suppose, they got together ready to fight. And when they got ready to fight, they formed these lines, right? okay? Because obviously in those days, you know, there was a, you know, that's the way they fought with swords and everything. They, they formed these lines for battle. And then as the lines formed in the morning, who should step out? But Goliath, alright? Now we think of Goliath as a big person. But, I mean, that was just his name, right? I mean, it was Goliath who stood out from the Philistine side. Now what are we told about this Goliath character? Okay, now the secret is in the details, right? What are we told about Goliath? Why are we told so much about Goliath? It says there in verse 4, a champion. Uh, literally, it means someone who steps out of the line to face the other, the other line. Uh, 
named Goliath, was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He wore a bronze helmet on his head and wore a scale, a coat of scale armor with bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a brown, bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels and his shield bearer weighed ahead of him. So, everything focuses here in verse 4 to verse 7 as to how impressive Goliath was. And he was a very impressive person, isn't it? He was impressive because he was really big. So if you look up there on your footnotes, your footnotes sort of translate all those cubits and shekels and all those sort of stuff. He was about nine feet tall, okay? Now, uh, I'm, I'm pretty tall myself. No, just kidding, right? I'm only about five foot something, right? Okay, so you imagine, you know, nine feet, that's like up there somewhere, okay? So he was really tall, but not only was he really tall and big, he was covered with the best armor, defensive armor of the day. So it was moving from the Iron Age to the Bronze Age. And here he had the, the most advanced defensive armor. He had bronze helmet. Okay, so this next slide. Okay, so this is a, apparently archaeologists have found these sort of helmets around the region around that time. So this is a bronze helmet. He had these helmets. He had bronze scale of armor across his body. He had guards on his legs and his ankles. And he had a shield. So you can imagine how impregnable this huge fella looked. He was like armored everywhere. Helmet, chest, stomach, groin area, legs, shield. Alright? But not only was he big, with strong defensive armor, he had really useful and very powerful offensive weapons. So it says here in our translation, the NIV, that he had some sort of bronze javelin slung on his back. Now this is sort of like a short range weapon, right? So I imagine a big sword on his back. It's like a sharp, sort of short fighting weapon. At the same time, he had a long-range weapon with a spear. And this spear was like a weaver's beam, which meant it was really long. So not only did he, was he big, good armor, short-range and offensive weapons, but also, the emphasis here is on how strong he was, isn't it? Because the armor itself, if you look out in the... Anyway, in my Bible, there was a, there's a translation here for the 5,000 shekels. His armor itself weighed 58 kilograms. Now, that's heavier than some of the women here today, right? Okay? Now, can you imagine how strong it would be just to carry that? But not only that, just to emphasize the point. <clears throat> it says there in verse um, 7, his spear shaft, at the end of the spear shaft was an iron point that weighed 600 shekels. That means it weighs 6.9 kilograms. Okay, now I'll give you an illustration. Okay, this is uh, one of my lighter weights. Just kidding, okay? Okay, so this is... Uh, how, how heavy do you think this thing weighs? Five, right? Okay, how can you see? Okay, five kg, right? Okay, so this weighs five kg. Now, it's uh, heavy enough for me to carry... Just like that. Imagine that at the end of a long spear. How strong Goliath would have been to be able to just lift it up and throw that spear. So he was big, armored, well-weaponed, and he was amazingly strong. This man would intimidate and frighten, cower and cringe anybody with fear, isn't it? And that's exactly 
what he did. He made the Israelites cower and he challenged the Israelites. And what did he say? He said, why don't you come out and choose a man and if he's able to fight and kill me, we will be your subjects. And if I overcome him and kill him, we will become your, uh, uh, your subjects and we will serve you, right? So here is not uh, going to be a fight where there's going to be an umpire who's going to rule uh, for a winner, where you know you can sort of pat the mat and you decide that it's become too difficult. It's, it's for all the marbles. If you lose, you die, and all your army will be subject to the enemy. And in verse 10, uh, it says there very powerfully that this Philistine Goliath said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give, us, give me a man and let us fight each other. Now, in your translations, the word here, defy, is like a G, uh, G-rating translation. It literally means, I spit on you. Right? I scorn on you. I, I give you a rude sign. Right? I, I say bad things about your mother. I trash talk you. That's what he's basically doing to them. And in verse 16, day and night, it says there, right? Every morning and every evening, Goliath would come and challenge the army of Israel. So that means for 80 times, Goliath will come and challenge the army of Saul, the people of Israel. And no one, no one will come and stand up to Goliath. In fact, what was the reaction of Israel? Well, in verse 11 and verse 24, it says very clearly, isn't it? On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. In verse 24, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now compare verse 24 to verse 11, and what is the word that keeps being repeated? So look at your Bibles, verse 11 and verse 24, what is the word that keeps being repeated? All, isn't it? Everyone stood in fear before Goliath. Now, the question is, we come to this story, obviously everybody knows the ending of the story, so it doesn't hold any tension anymore. But, as we come to this part of the story, the question is, who is going to actually save God's people? Isn't it? Because here is this great and powerful, awesome, terrifying enemy. And who is going to save God's people from this Goliath? Is it going to be King Saul? Remember, if we remember over the last few weeks, next slide, King Saul was a big person himself, Remember? One of the things that we were told about King Saul was that he was a head taller than everybody else. And in chapter 8, he was the one who was, I guess, voted king to lead and fight the battles for Israel. But where is Saul? He's nowhere to be found. Is it going to be the brothers of David? Remember Eliab, the, the, the eldest brother last week we saw? He was a very big fellow himself. Again, 80 times, 80 challenges. And he doesn't go there. The situation seems very hopeless. And we think, what's going to happen to this situation? Where is David? And we see David, remember last week we heard that he was the smallest and the youngest of the Israelites, of the, sorry, the family of Jesse, right? And the picture of, 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 of David is a, it's not a very encouraging picture at this point in time. Isn't it? What is he doing? He's looking after sheep. He is a pizza delivery boy, right? In a way, right? Running his scooter up to the front line delivering bread and cheese to the troops. He's sneaking out to see the action. In fact, if you see in chapter uh, 17, verse 42, Goliath looks at David and saw that he was little more than a 
boy, glowing with health and handsome. So if you want to have a picture of David, this is what David probably looked like, right? Next slide. Okay, this is from my uh, Lion Handbook of the Bible. Okay, so this is apparently what shepherd boys in, uh, in the Middle East still do today. This is probably what David looked like. He wasn't a big fellow, right? We often think, Dave, you know, David is like this, you know, he's, he's you know, an NS ready person, you know, all ready to fight Goliath. No, he's probably a young, a, a boy just out of adolescence. So how can, how can anyone save God's people in Israel? Because they are all frightened of Goliath and his great might. But there's one thing different, isn't it? Because in last week's passage, we learned there was one thing different about David. I mean, that's not David, but David would have been something similar to that. What was different about David last week? Different from all the other Israelites. His heart, remember? His heart was different than the other brothers. His heart was different from the other people. His heart was aligned with God. And here, as we look in the passage, we see how David's heart and perspective is so different from all Israel. So in verse 26, he's at the front line, and, uh, and look at what he says. He says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, when we read that, we think, ah, well, what's the big deal? What's so different about what's coming out of David's mouth? It is fundamentally different. It is like night and day compared to what the other Israelites are thinking. It's almost as if David has got these glasses, right? And, and it's like God glasses. And he sees the situation from God's perspective because you notice what he says. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, the fact that he describes him as an uncircumcised Philistine means that he's a pagan. He's someone outside God's people. And who is this person who is not a believer who should defy the armies of God? He sees things from God's perspective. Right? You notice all along in the earlier parts of uh, chapter 17, it's always about Goliath versus Israel. Goliath versus Saul. So you look back and uh, in uh, verse 8, how does uh, Goliath see the struggle? He says, Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Isn't it? Whereas David says, how can, how can he defy the armies of the living God? It's not Saul's army, it's God's army. Look at how the Israelites themselves see it in verse 25. Now the Israelites have been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes to defy who? Israel, isn't it? That's the way they see it. They, they see Goliath as the Philistine who defies Israel or the Philistine who defies Saul. But David, because of his heart, sees that it is actually Goliath defying God. He's actually spitting in God's face. He's actually trash-talking God. He's actually saying bad things about God. He's not just saying bad things about Saul or the Israelites. And he gets angry, isn't it? He gets angry for God's behalf. 
Now, I was reading a book uh, recently about anger. Actually, I've only read the first chapter out of 20 or something. But uh, what he said was quite helpful. He said that, you know, ang- anger was actually an emotion given by God when we see injustice. You know, whenever we, th- we feel angry, it's always because we think something is not fair. Someone cut me at, the, at my queue or someone did something wrong to me. It's not fair, right? Righteous anger is where we feel something is not fair to God. It's not right before God. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? Uh, David is experiencing righteous anger on God's behalf because Goliath is actually saying bad things about God and God's people and God's army. Now, if you look up here on this slide, okay, uh, Jesus also displays righteous anger. So remember when Jesus went into the temple, he saw the people selling, um, you know, all sorts of stuff, uh, cattle, sheep and doves, and exchanging money in the temple, and he got angry. And he cast them out of the temple. Why? Because the other people just saw it as doing business, but Jesus saw it as an offense to God. Again, in the next slide, in Mark chapter 3, uh, in this incident, uh, on the Sabbath, the, the the religious leaders didn't want him to heal the man with the withered hand. And Jesus got angry because they misunderstood God and misunderstood God's Sabbath. And he healed the man's hand. So in the same way, what's happening here is David sees things like Jesus sees things. He, he sees things from God's perspective. And he sees that Goliath is actually defying God and not Saul and not the Philistines. Because his heart is different. But it's not enough that he sees things differently, but you notice that he speaks out for God. Because he keeps saying, who is going to do something about this man? And let's look at what it says there in verse 28. So look at me in verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. Now, not only does Saul, sorry, does David see things through God's eyes, but he's willing to speak out for God. Now, Eliab, if you remember last week, was the oldest brother. Maybe, you know, his pride was hurt because he didn't want to stand up to Goliath. Maybe he was jealous of uh, how David had been anointed by the prophet Samuel. But whatever it is, you can imagine him and his tone, isn't it? You know, he's sort of saying like, you know, ah, you know, you little pipsqueak, what are you talking about, you know? What are you doing here, you small fry, Right? You know, you've got to go home, you know, you little shrimp. You know, you've got a big mouth for a small kid. You know, that sort of thing, right? But you notice it doesn't stop David from continuing to speak out for God. Look at his reply, right? He says, can't I even speak? And he doesn't stop, but he keeps going on. Who is going to do something about this Goliath for God? Who is going to stand up for God? Who is going to do something? And as we see further on, in spite of his small size and in spite of his youth, when no one is willing to do anything, he puts himself forward to do something about it. In verse 32, David said to Saul, 
Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now I want you to think about this picture for a second. Okay? Uh, uh, think slide. Okay, let, let's always go back to this picture. Okay, just think for a moment who David is. He is a young shepherd boy, barely out of his youth, and he's talking to the big king. And what does he say to big king Saul? Do not lose heart. I will go and fight. Uh, now, this is a sort of script that you only see in like uh, Toy Story 5, right? Or, you know, some Walt Disney movie, you know, like Planes or something like that, isn't it? Can you imagine a young boy like this telling big King Saul, who is a head older, taller than everybody else, do not lose heart. I will go and fight. But, it's ridiculous, isn't it? From a human point of view, it is ridiculous that someone so young and so small would fight for Israel when you have a big King Saul. And that's exactly what Saul says, isn't it? The way Saul sees it is how ridiculous it is. In verse 33, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior since his youth. See, it's a ridiculous picture that David should even contemplate fighting Goliath. It is a man versus a boy. It is David versus Goliath. And that is not just the way uh, King Saul sees it. It is the way Goliath sees it too. It is a ridiculous situation because even Goliath himself says, isn't it? In verse 41, he says, Am I, sorry, in verse, uh, um, verse 43, Am I a dog that you come at me, at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Come here and I'll give you, give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Now from David's perspective, he doesn't see things like the way King Saul sees it. The way Goliath sees it. The way any normal person in Israel that day would have seen it. If they were to take bets that day, would anybody have bet on David? No, right? Even if you give, I don't know how the betting system works, 1,000 to 1 odds, nobody would have bet on David. Because from a human, worldly perspective, a little boy versus the best warrior of the Philistine army, of course, the Philistine warrior is going to win, isn't it? But I want you to see things not the way the world sees things or Saul sees things, or Goliath sees things. But see it the way David sees things. How does David see this struggle? Is he going in there thinking he will lose? Well, look at what it says there in verse 45 to 47. Now, this is the most important section of this whole passage. Okay, This is like the key to understanding this whole passage. So, if you only understand any part, this is the part to understand. Verse 45 to 47. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. 
And the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you all of you into our hands. You notice this perspective is so different from David compared to Saul and Goliath. For David, there is no doubt who will win. He will win. Why? Because it's not David versus Goliath, but it is God versus Goliath. If it is God versus Goliath, then who can beat God? No one can defeat God. Not even the strongest man can defeat God. And that is why David does not think he can lose. If you look at this passage in verse 45 to verse 47, every verse refers to God, isn't it? God is the one who is going to defeat you. This day, the Lord will strike your head, strike you down and cut off your head. All, right? All those will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone here will know that God saves. For David, there is no doubt. And that's why David wins. Now, as we look at this passage, as we come to it, it ends with a resounding victory, isn't it? Uh, I don't know where I put the map there. Is there a map again after this? No, I didn't. Okay, if you look at the map, the, uh, the beginning, you see that... Uh, okay, maybe go back to the beginning, sorry. The first, the first slide. If you look at the map, you would have this in your Bible study. You see that as a result of David winning, they pursue them all the way back to Akron and Gath. Isn't it? They, they conquer the major cities of the Philistines. So the victory of David was a very significant victory over Goliath. So definitely, as we see, God did work to David. God was greater than Goliath. Now, as we look at this story, I'm sure most of you know the story. Everybody knows the phrase. Even the whole, even people who do not believe in uh, the Bible or uh, do not believe in Jesus, they also believe in the David and Goliath uh, sort of mythology sort of thing, isn't it? So, if uh, Singapore football team were to play Spain, it would be described as David versus Goliath, right? Okay, because you know it will seem like it's impossible for Singapore to win. So as we look at this passage, I think that there, there, there's many times where people misapply this passage. Okay, so I, I want to start off by, by telling you not to misapply it first before we apply it properly because I've heard it misapplied so many times. The first way that we misapply it is that we always want to put ourselves into the story and be David. Okay, everybody wants to be the hero, everyone wants to be David. And I've heard sermons preached, especially at school, okay, my, my, my son's school, where they'll say, oh, you know, what is the Goliath in your life? It's the PSLE. That's the Goliath in your life. It is the O-levels. It is the A-levels. That, that's the, that is the Goliath in your life. So what do you need to do? What can you learn from David? You need to, to pick those five stones so that you can kill that Goliath in your life. And what are the five stones? Well, one of the stones is faith. You must have faith in God and keep praying to Him all the time. The second one is that, you know, you must have discipline, you know, because, you know, David had lots of discipline because, you know, he practiced a lot with the sling. How else was he able to hit Goliath in the head? You must have courage to face your fears. You know, don't be afraid of the, the big bad exam. Right? You must have confidence because, you know, David spoke up to the king. And, you know, you must be imaginative because, you know, David was really imaginative because, you know, he could see that there was that weakness there, right, on the forehead when everything else was covered. 
But that is not the right application to this passage, isn't it? Because David did not win because of the five smooth stones. David won because God was working through him. And we are not David. David was a real person in history and God was working through him to save his people because he was the king. So how should we then understand this passage? Well, I think as you come to most passages, we always ask ourselves the question, what does it teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about Jesus? What does this passage tell us about godly living as God's people? So, if, uh, sorry, you've got to go to the slide, the other slide now. You've got to go forward again. Okay, so, eh? Oh, that's right, yeah. So, that's the way that the, the New Testament tells us how we should understand the Old Testament, right? So, in Luke chapter 24, uh, like Jesus taught his disciples, he explained to them what the scriptures were saying about himself. So, what, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it also tells us that the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, make us wise for salvation uh, through faith in Christ Jesus, but it's also useful for teaching us how we should live as his people, right? Because it teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. So, first of all, what do we learn about God in this situation? Well, the answer is in the passage, isn't it? Because in verse 47, David said very clearly in the hearing of the Israelites, the Philistines and Goliath, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give all of you into our hands. So what do we learn about God from this incident? He is a God who saves. He is a God who saves even when the situation seems impossible. So the thing we learn about God is there is no situation from which God cannot save. If we put our faith in God, He is a God who will not let us down. And He will, he will be a God who even in impossible situations can save us, save us. And this is exactly the situation in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? Because it says, very clearly, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, up, gave him up for all, us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate, separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Jesus our Lord. See, what happens in the battle in the valley of Elah is the same God that is at work in us, isn't it? A God who is able to save us. A God who will never leave us. Who cannot be separated from us or achieve salvation for us even through death or any powers. So seeing things from God's perspective we must always trust in God, isn't it? 
as we look at this passage, I wonder whether you feel anything. Uh, I know we, we become very intellectual at church, but imagine this is a movie, right? At the end of the movie, David's Goliath, I know it's very gory, you know, he's got the Goliath's head in his hands, right? All the blood dripping everywhere. But then now again, nowadays movies are very violent anyway. You just have to watch Riddick or something, right? Now, what do you feel? Do you feel anything as you read this passage? Don't think of it intellectually. What do you feel as a, as a person who is on the side of God? What are you meant to feel if you're Israelite? I hope you feel something. You're meant to feel confidence, isn't it, in God? You're meant to feel joy that you have such a God with you. You're meant to feel wonder at the power of God. I wonder whether that's missing in us, whether we've, we've lost the feeling that comes from having such a wonderful God, such a powerful God who will save us. Now, I think it's not just David who gives us that confidence that God saves. Because I think David is also pointing us forward to the ultimate salvation, isn't it? Because Goliath is not the enemy that we face. The Philistines are not the enemy that we face. Uh, I guess the Israelites and ourselves, we face even a greater enemy, and that is death, the enemy of death. That is the big lie for us, and judgment and hell. And actually, the picture of God's salvation in 1 Samuel 17 is actually a picture of the greater salvation to take place. God, when He is with us, through His servant, Jesus, saves us from death, judgment and hell. And again, that should fill us with wonder and joy and confidence. So again, the next slide. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, The thing of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. See, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's actually a picture for ourselves today. A God who saves, but not just through David, but his real king, the King Jesus. So let's always put our hope in God. The last application that uh, I could uh, think of, and I I think this is something that we learn from David, uh, is that we must continue to always act out our faith. David was someone who, as we see in this incident, acted out his faith. He spoke up for God. Uh, He did what was right by God. He put himself on the line for God. Now, that doesn't mean that there will be times where things do not work out for us. So, I remember um, I was referring to this commentary uh, by this guy called Dale Rolf Davis and he says that there are times where when we have to speak up for God's honor and God's reputation and God's glory and people will hate us for it. And he recounts a story of how uh, someone came to him to marry them. And one was a Christian and one was a non-Christian. And he said that he didn't feel it was right, so he didn't choose to. But it would cause the couple to be angry with him, the parents to be angry with him and maybe leave the church, and other people who were their friends to be angry with him. But he said that it was important to speak up for God's honor and glory and reputation first, rather than to please people. And I think that that's what David does, isn't it? He speaks up for God's reputation. He says, look, this guy, Goliath, is defying God. Who will speak up for him? So in the same way, we must speak up for God and say, look, what is right before God? We must be willing 
to do it even though it is difficult and hard and it brings cost to us. So in conclusion, this is actually a very exciting story, isn't it? Actually, when you come to it, I hope that if you read it with fresh eyes, it is a story which brings you great confidence and joy and, and, and I guess, uh, a great security in knowing what a God we have. Uh, I remember when my mother was still alive. Uh, she used to go to church with my father. And she used to say that the, church, the pastor there was always frowning. All right? He was always frowning. Seemed to have a lot of problems. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I was thinking, actually, we don't want to be frowning all the time, isn't it, at church? Because when you read a story like this, it should really fill you with wonder at what a God we have. That He is able to save in any circumstance. That He is able to look after His people. That He is able to watch over us. So I hope that as you do look at this passage, it's not just an intellectual thing but truly you will rejoice at what a great and powerful, loving God we have. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for who you are. We truly want to rejoice and be glad at the God we worship, who we can call our Father. For you are God who saves in every single circumstance, that there is nothing that can stand the way of your salvation. We pray that we will always never be discouraged, never be down, never be downcast, because you are a God who will never let us down. Dear Father, we pray that as we continue to worship you, continue to have faith in you, that we will always stand up for you as well and never be ashamed of you, but to always speak up on your behalf. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.